This week's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is why I love being a host. First and foremost, it's about sharing the unique, amazing stories of remarkable people within the orthopedic world. We feature Dr. Joaquin Sanchez-Sotelo, who's a full professor of orthopedics at the Mayo Clinic. He's literally one of the world's leading authorities on shoulder and elbow. He was born in Madrid, Spain. He talks about his amazing story of how going through medical school in Spain and then wanting the desire to come to the United States to train at the Mayo Clinic with Dr. Caulfield and Dr. Mori, his mentors, how he's taken the torch of mentorship and passed that on. And now literally, you know, you think of a full professor from the Mayo Clinic, you may not be able to be very approachable. He is such a nice man. He's so passionate about education and sharing what he's learned. He provides leadership by serving, was one of his comments as he's in the presidential line for the ASCS. He is a, a very kind man. I love this episode. You're going to love it too. Hashtag follow the fro. This episode is brought to you by National Medical Billing Services. As the largest and most experienced outsourced provider of end-to-end revenue cycle management services, National Medical is an award-winning company that serves hundreds of ambulatory surgery centers, surgical practices, and anesthesia groups nationwide. National Medical Surgical Revenue Cycle Specialists' deep understanding of orthopedic procedures and numerous specialties help alleviate staffing concerns often faced by surgical organizations in today's marketplace. National Medical's managed care contracting team negotiates new and renegotiates outdated payer rates to maximize your reimbursement, while its cutting-edge workflow technology, proprietary processes, and analytics drive superior financial results for surgical organizations. Go to nationalmedicalascbilling.com to access National Medical's orthopedic case study and find out how a strategic partnership with National Medical can triple your annual revenue and increase your patient satisfaction in the process. For more information on how National Medical optimizes coding, billing, and reimbursement practices, visit nationalascbilling.com or call National Medical at 866-319-3271. That number again is 866-319-3271. Go to nationalascbilling.com today to request a complimentary revenue cycle assessment. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring the best of the best in the orthopedic world. And I am super excited for today's episode. We truly have one of the more remarkable orthopedic surgeons from around the world. We have Dr. Joaquin Sanchez Sotelo, who's one of the world's leading authorities on shoulder and elbow uh, issues. He's a professor of orthopedics at the Mayo Clinic. He's the division chair of shoulder and elbow surgery, the director of the Mayo Clinic Shoulder and Elbow Fellowship. And if I had another three hours, I could read his entire CV, but we're not going to do that. (laughs) But Joaquin, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott, and congratulations on the Ortho Show. What a wonderful, wonderful thing you do. No, it's greatly appreciated. We have listeners from all over the world, 25 countries at this point, and uh, I know there's going to be some listeners from Spain who are going to be very excited to hear uh, your story as well. So 
We always like to start from the beginning. So let's do that. We know that uh, you were, you're from Madrid, Spain. Were you born in Madrid as well? I was, yeah. I was born in Madrid. Fantastic. So when did orthopedics and, and medicine come to mind? Are you a family of surgeons? Where did it come from? So I'll tell you the story behind that. So my father was an orthopedic surgeon. Actually, before that, he was a soccer player. He played for Atletico de Madrid. Then he went into orthopedics. And um, I have a brother, so it was just my brother and I with my mom and my dad. And uh, very early on in my life, my dad used to take me on rounds on the weekends. So Sunday mornings when he had to see his patients on rounds, I would go with him to the hospital. And I was in the OR for the first time at the age of 10, actually. Oh, my gosh. It's uh, so a family business then. I love it. <laughs> in Spain, the rules were different back then. So you could actually get a child in the operating room. That would never happen today in the United States. Yes. But, uh, that's what really brought me into uh, medicine, you know, just uh, an admiration for my father and wanting to follow his career. That's amazing. So you were either going to be a professional soccer player or an orthopedic surgeon. I couldn't play good enough to be like Cristiano Ronaldo. So I had to go into <laughs> orthopedics. Yes. I love soccer, you know, and I'm really disappointed that Spain this year, but it is what it is. Well, um, Bert Mandelbaum and his team for the U.S. team actually did a very nice job and got us further than we thought we would go to. Yep. But what a wonderful thing to be able to watch that every four years. It really does bring the world together. It's really an amazing event. Yes, it is. That's wonderful. All right. So you're in Spain. So you're born into orthopedics, literally. Um, so there wasn't much of a doubt as to your career choice. Uh, and then tell us about the the college and medical school experience in Spain. Uh, is it combined into one program? Is it how long is it? Is there high school, college? Tell us all about it. It is so different. So number one, in Spain, most students stay with their parents until they graduate from either law school or medical school. So people don't go to college away. They just stay in their hometown, typically in the flat. In the case of Madrid, you live in an apartment. Um, and then the medical school program is actually six years. So year number one to three is basic science, so anatomy, biochemistry, biology. And then years four to six is more uh, going to the hospital, being in surgery, internal medicine, pediatrics, and so on. So how old are you when you graduate medical school? So... Typically, if things go well, you uh, enter a medical school, uh, let's see, when you are um, 19 to 20, so 26. That's pretty good. You know, that's pretty, it's about the right sort of uh, timeline as to what you would want for sure. Uh, so then uh, you decide you're going to stick around and do your residency program in Spain. At this point, it looks like you're in that target for staying in Spain and maybe taking over dad's practice. But so how was your residency? What is that like compared to the residencies here in the States? We'd love to hear it. So residency is a five-year program. It's very, very similar to the United States. It's just that uh, different countries have different strengths. So I had great exposure to hip and knee arthroplasty. I have good exposure to spine. And I had some exposure also to trauma, of course, but I didn't have much exposure to shoulder and elbow, interestingly, because... You know, we don't have throwing athletes very often in Spain with the basketball players. So as a resident, I felt that there was lack in training in shoulder and elbow. And that's what piqued my attention about Mayo Clinic. I wanted to go somewhere to learn the part of orthopedics that I was not going to get in my hometown residency program. It's interesting, right? So, and, and that's a great, great, really great point for our listeners. Sometimes the decision on how you're going to make as to what you do for your fellowship, it may be that you just want some extra special training, but it may be to fill a gap in, in the training that you that you received. So 
no big deal. Okay, I'm in Madrid, Spain. I'm just going to pop over to the Mayo Clinic and do a fellowship. How hard could that be? So that had to have been an arduous process. Tell us about how you got a fellowship at the Mayo Clinic out of Madrid. You know, I was very, very lucky and well-connected because one of the former hip and knee surgeons at Mayo, his name is Miguel Cabanella, he's now retired. He's from Spain and he practiced at Mayo Clinic for his whole career. He used to come to my hospital for one course we had on hip arthroplasty. So I met him and I was really in awe when I listened to him present. I was like, oh my God, this guy, he's coming from a different world. So I talked to him and I said, you know, I'd like to visit the Mayo Clinic as a resident. At that time, I wasn't thinking about fellowship. I was just coming here for three months to learn how things were done at Mayo for shoulder and elbow. And I was um, accepted to a three-month observing visiting resident program. <clears throat> and then when I came to Mayo Clinic, I liked the way they practiced so much that then I applied for fellowship at the end of my stay. So I came just to learn shoulder and elbow. But after being exposed to the things that they were doing at the clinic at the time, I said, you know what, I really want to come here and prolong my training. So that's how things happen. So I went back to Spain and uh, I applied for fellowship. And I don't know about you, but uh, I am uh, from a time where email wasn't actually very, very, very common. So my acceptance came through a telegram. <laughs> oh, and well, I, but many of our listeners are like what's a telegram and like, I, actually, I actually have it saved in madrid so i was in madrid in my flat you know and then one day the mailman comes in and knocks the door and gives me a blue envelope and i open and it was a single line congratulations you have been accepted for for the fellowship so is it behind yeah. you on the wall somewhere that's something no, I, have it home, but, uh, I treasure it you know yes I, i'm any, sure you do any right. younger people don't even know what the telegram is you know no it's so uh, much less a phone that you used to pick up and hold with like yep. a ringer and rotary and all that stuff we're old we got lots of gray hair Joaquin, but that's good so so did you need so then you had to like have a visa you must have had to get a special visa to come on over as well was that difficult or, or is it relatively smooth yeah you probably know about the different types of visa but when you are a foreigner and you come for fellowship you come under a j1 visa which is a very interesting visa because you have to come with the promise that you will return to your home country after training and that is sponsored by the institution that is trying to hire you so Getting the visa wasn't very difficult because Mayo Clinic had a way to support the visa, and I came here for, for visa. But what you will find interesting, because it's going to take us to how I came to work here, is that when I applied for the fellowship, it was called Adult Reconstruction Fellowship, and it included hip, knee, shoulder, and elbow. And then once I was here, they split the program in two years. So I stayed for a second year. Awesome, which uh, is great, because that helps you for your 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 additional process to be able to potentially stay right exactly additional years of training that's wonderful exactly good. Good, good, and good. then after my second year um in the united states training as a fellow i had to return to spain for two years before coming back again because that's the rule with the j1 visa okay so so first and foremost you, you get to rochester minnesota out of madrid spain and you didn't get right back on the plane when you realized how cold and how different no, it was funny. You know what's funny? I remember the night before I came for my fellowship, I was uh, in Madrid watching TV and they played the movie Fargo. Yes, of course. And uh, I don't know if you remember Fargo, but, you know, it's like it's snowing and, you know, very cold. And you see all these people from the Midwest. And I thought, oh, my God, should I go here or not? And I was shocked when I came here to see how, you know, uh, a small 
the city was compared to Madrid and and the weather, you know, everything. It was it was a shock. Now it's different, but back then we had like a couple of restaurants and there wasn't really much to do. It was a lifetime decision for you. It was a real pivotal moment to to say, okay, am I going to stay here on this course that I've chartered for myself, which is going to be exceptionally difficult? Uh, perhaps maybe some language issues, uh, temperature issues, culture issues, all of those things. But we do have to give a quick shout out to the number one orthopedic uh, fan and person from Fargo, North Dakota, Bill Levine, which we'll talk a little bit about later on. But we got to give our Bill Levine shout out. But no, I mean, the idea of being able to come to the United States and then leave your family that you've been with and then start this practice and you do your fellowship, then you go back for two years and then tell us the, the, the process or thought as to going back to the Mayo Clinic, because once you go back, you knew that was pretty much going to be it. What was your decision making? Yeah, what happened is that I went back to Madrid after fellowship with the intention of staying in Spain. But the way that orthopedics is practiced in Spain is very different um, to the way it's practiced in the U.S. And it was even more different than 20 years ago. I just couldn't adapt. Like after being in the U.S. for two years, and at least in my institution, everything seems to work. Like people are friendly and they are nice and they're working hard and no one questions what you have to do. It was a shock to go back to Spain and try to work and face difficulties. So I kept in touch with my mentors who were Dr. Cofield and Dr. Murray. And I said, you know, I really want to come back. Is there an opportunity? And then Dr. Caulfield was the chairman at the time. He was very connected with the board and he found a way for me to come back here and uh, be able to practice and, you know, get my license and so on. It's a shame you couldn't get better mentors, though. I mean, really, you couldn't get anybody better than those two? Oh, Scott, I am so lucky about that. I, I tell all my residents and fellows that having one or two or three mentors, it is priceless, you know. And uh, those two guys, they, I mean, I love them to pieces. And they went to bat for you. I mean, it wasn't an easy process. You needed to have a sponsor to be able to be able to get through the process and then be able to have a position and a spot that's available for you when you sort of came back in. So that's that's truly wonderful. So now you're you're a lifer. You're a Mayo Clinic lifer. And I'd love to talk a little bit about the Mayo Clinic and the culture of the Mayo Clinic, because it really is very different than the vast majority of hospitals in the United States. Um, and so it's more of a shared experience, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, both from the culture of learning and academics, but also financially as well uh, for for the attendings that work there. Can you give us a little breakdown of what it's like at the Mayo? Sure, of course. So Mayo Clinic is a non-for-profit organization. It is run by physicians. So our CEO has never been an administrator. It's always a doctor that knows how to practice medicine. And um, people come here only because they love their profession. No one would choose to live in Rochester and be on salary if you could do something else, unless you love what you do. And I think what keeps us together is the collegiality and to some extent the inbreeding. Most of our um, consultants uh, trained here for either residential or fellowship. They kind of know the main way of doing things. And uh, then people uh, are able to fit into that uh, culture uh, where the basic premise is that you want to do whatever is good for the patient and everything else falls into place. We're all on salary, so we don't have to compete for patients for money, which is good and bad sometimes. Uh, but um, I think it uh, creates an environment where the patient is really the first thing that we think about when we make any decision about uh, healthcare. And then, of course, since it's a very big enterprise, there is a lot of resources that you benefit from. You know, So it's true that we don't get paid as much as other people, but you have access to uh, a statistical analysis for free, You know, support for trips, uh, many, many other um, resources that make it very appealing 
uh, to work. But I think most of us that are here, we're just workaholics and we just love orthopedics. So this is what we do. No, I think it's really interesting. It's a just such a different way of practicing medicine. When everyone is a salaried position, it's not a volume thing anymore. It's collegiality. Everybody's working together. It's sort of an equal process. So that's a very unique concept uh, compared to most. Now, a lot of academic centers uh, in Massachusetts in particular, any of the Boston programs, it's like they won't allow you to do anything outside of what your clinical practice is. You can't be an industry. You can't be a consultant. So I know we're going to talk a little bit about your project with the, with the shoulder uh, total shoulder replacements as we get going, but do they allow you to have some outside interest to be able to produce new and ideas and and concepts? Yes. So we have a department that is called Mayo Clinic Ventures. And uh, the premise is that if you are a Mayo Clinic consultant, you must work for Mayo Clinic Ventures. And that means that the gains are shared. So you are allowed to design with companies, but the contract is a three-way contract where one party is the company. I work with a striker, for example. So a striker corporation is one party. I am another party signing and the Mayo Clinic is another party. And all the payments go to Mayo Clinic. And then of those payments, we get a small amount. So, I mean, I think that's important because for someone like yourself that has decades of experience that you know, it, you you have ideas that you want to share. You want to be able to help the next generation uh, and be able to to take advantage of those ideas. So I'm glad that you do have the the opportunity to to be able to share in that. Now I know that we've used the word mentor. It's a it's a very popular word on the Ortho Show. So tell us about you know your experience there. You're you you must be you've taken over the the candle now of mentorship, where you're the you're the mentor, uh, whether it's your fellowship or your residence. I know it's a great passion for you. Tell us about your your experience in education and and how much you love it. I think uh, being a mentor uh, is very 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 rewarding, and sometimes it's difficult to define what is it to be a mentor. And for me, it's basically three things. A mentor is someone that will talk to you from experience, so not so much from a book or a journal, but from experience. So my mentor for the elbow, Dr. Morris, he used to tell me things about the elbow that are not in books, but he knew them, you know. Secondly, is a person that will listen to you when you need to be listened. There are times in life where you just need to vent and someone else is going to be there just to listen to you. And then finally, someone that will cheer for you for any success you have. So I think if you think about being a mentor and approach your mentees that way, where you teach them whatever you have learned from experience, you're always there to listen. And if they have a success, you always say, hey, great job. You have this paper published. I think that really, you actually get more than you give as a mentor. And I've been lucky to have many very good mentors. And as I said, having more than one is even better. And now I try to do my best mentoring our fellows, our residents, medical students, and even some of my younger partners. I like mentoring a lot. It's a great responsibility. I mean, with Dr. Mori in particular, you know, the godfather of the elbow for for so many, you know, orthopedic surgeons from around the world who they've learned from. And now you're, you know, you're sitting in his chair and and you must do the same. You must pass it on uh, to your fellows, residents and medical students. It's a great responsibility. And one I know that you take you, with great responsibility and, and you cherish. So wonderful. We appreciate it. Yeah, I just don't know that I can feel Dr. Morris shoes. You know, he's the ultimate mentor, as you very well know. He's incredible. Yes. He's a person that I have witnessed talking to multiple people at different levels. And when he's talking to you, whoever you are, you can be a janitor, a nurse, a student, a surgeon. He makes you feel like in that moment, the only thing he cares about is you. 
And that power of connection of making you feel that you're really important and it will just energize you. So I remember when we used to meet, you know, I would leave the meetings super energized. The guy's like a power machine. You know, it, it's wonderful. And I can hear, you know, as you as you came on air and we were talking, you know, before we went live, you know, you were so gracious in, in your you know, appreciation of being on the show and, and the fact that you really have enjoyed listening to the ortho show. So those qualities have clearly passed on uh, to you, Joaquin. I just sense that, you know, you're a person that people want to be around. And, and for such a professor, you know, for many times, professors can be a little, you know, put off. They, they don't want to be um, uh, surrounded by people, but I don't get the sense about you at that, that at all. I think you're, you're very gracious and in, uh, in bringing people around you to help, to, to help teach them. That's really, truly a wonderful gift. All right, so let's talk about a couple other things that I think are in your world. We're going to stick around with the shoulder because I don't know anything about the elbow, so we got to stay at the shoulder. But, you know, I think it's exciting that that robots are finally coming, you know, to the shoulder, right? We know about robotic surgery of the hip and knee. We just had Pat St. Pierre on, who's a dear friend of ours, uh, who's a member of your amazing team with George Athwal and a few others, which I'm, I can't, what a great crew to be working with, I'm sure. So tell us about, tell our listeners why you're excited about the robot and total shoulder replacement. Oh my God, don't get me started. That is like what I'm waiting for every single day. Well, you know, um, if you look at the field of knee arthroplasty right now, I would say that most of my knee partners that do arthroplasty, they use a robot. Could be Mako or Velis, uh, you know, any of the different brands, to the point that if they have to do a unicompartmental arthroplasty, they won't do it if the robot is not available. So that's going to translate into the shoulder. In the shoulder, as you know, we have been really good at planning. So we have amazing planning software. But then we have to execute eyeballing, and that's not right. So I think the robot is going to provide accuracy that goes beyond what we can do. And I think it's going to change completely, especially glenoid management, because the glenoid, as you know, is a very small bone, and you don't have much freedom to make mistakes. So I think the robot will allow us to be very, very accurate and precise in preparation. But one thing that has me especially excited is that, as you know, when we do a shoulder arthroplasty, you have to use saws and reamers that require a pretty large exposure. But the effector end of a robot can be a burr. So I think it will open up the space for truly minimally invasive shoulder arthroplasty surgery where you could potentially open up the interval and be able to do all your body work through a smaller space because you don't need a big space to get a reamer. You can actually use a burr that can cut the humerus and prepare the glenoid at an angle. And if that was the case, you don't have to protect the shoulder anymore after surgery. People could do anything they want once the pain subsides. So I think in terms of being more accurate and potentially eliminating completely subscapular failure, I think that's going to be really amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, the shoulder arthroplasty world has just exploded uh, with you know new, new uh, implants that are available, new techniques whether it's the reverse total shoulder or the anatomic shoulder or the stem or the cascade, there's so many new implants. And, you know, some of my dear friends, Sharif Bechet and Paul Favorito, uh, we have a little chat and I'm always watching some of these really bad complications that you can see from shoulder replacement. I mean, for, for a master surgeon such as yourself, who does, who knows, a gazillion shoulder replacements a year, your eyeballs are pretty good and your hands are really good. And you can, and you may say we're just eyeballing it, but your brain really knows what's going on. But the guy who's maybe doing 15 or 20 shoulder replacements or the gal uh, a year, 
I think something the robot can really add for expertise and precision and help to eliminate complications. And then my other thought, Scott, is that if you think about other things in life, like driving a car or watching TV, anything we do, we have incorporated technology in everything we do. Like who functions today without a smartphone? No one. Everyone wants to have a Tesla because it's electric. So when we're working on the human body, we should have the desire to give our body the best possible treatment, right? So I think that we have to incorporate technology so that we can improve outcomes for our patients. No question about it. Yeah, technology has been way too slow to come to the operating room, right? I mean, I'm still using cords. I do a lot of arthroscopy, wires and cords. I mean, nobody has wires and cords anymore. But yeah, (laughs) that's what we do in the operating room. It's crazy. All right, so I want to make fun of you guys a little bit. And it's all in jest. But I, I think what's happening in the shoulder world, you guys don't learn things very quickly. Because it seems like there's a shoulder course every two weeks that you guys are going to. I'm, you know, we make fun of Joe Abood as a good friend. You know, Joe's constantly around, but they're literally like there must be like twelve shoulder courses a year. What's going on with that? What do you think? Yeah, uh, that's something that uh, I am worried about actually. Because you are correct. For example, in 2023, there will be two brand new courses starting one by HSS in May, and one by Pat Denard. I think it's more in the fall uh, at times. And um, I think the motivation for courses, of course, is teaching and learning, but also that some people want to use it as a promotional um, tool, maybe, or a way to um, maybe promote your career. Um, So I don't know that there is a way to regulate that, though, because no one has the right to tell someone else you don't have a course. You know, everyone is wanting to have their own course. But my worry is that with this course saturation, the attendance to each course is decreasing. So if you look at the number of registered attendees to courses, it has decreased substantially. Part of it may be the post-COVID idea that you can do things online and you don't need to go to a course face-to-face, but part of it is that there are so many options, you're not going to go to all of them. So the second part is that uh, industry is very supportive, of course, of all the courses, but you get to a point where you cannot support every single course that happens anywhere in the country. So I would agree with you that probably it should be an effort to consolidate some of the courses. Yeah, and I mean, we were saying about it in jest, but I think that, you know, the courses are wonderful and there's great learning experiences, master surgeons. But again, I mean, you need you, you need a full-time travel agent out of Rochester, Minnesota to get to all the courses that people ask you to come and, and, and attend as faculty. So, you know, at this point, uh, it's wonderful. I, I I make fun, but of course I say it all in jest. All right, so let's talk about a few other things that uh, that uh, you should be very proud of. And you are now in the presidential line for for the ASCS, the American Shoulder and Elbow Society. I think that's wonderful. You know, you've been working very hard towards this the professorship and all the things that you're doing. And now you're you're going to be president of the ASCS. What are your thoughts there? Are you excited for the opportunity? I am extremely excited and humbled and grateful because I never thought I would become president of ASCS. And my idea of leadership um, is about serving the society. So what I really want to do is make sure that ASCS provides the best possible experience for the members of the society and for the society in general. Um, I am very grateful about the people that have been mentoring me in how to understand how ASCS functions. And I think there is an opportunity to do great things because ASCS has a very widespread network of activities from political advocacy to the foundation, grants, research, our meeting, residence, fellows. So I am really, really excited. To be honest, Scott is the highest honor of my career. Like for me to be president of my fellow shoulder level surgeons is very, very unique. 
you know what I love best about you, Joaquin, is you're so gracious and you just wear it on your sleep, your shoulders and it's wonderful. I mean, you deserve it. Of course you do. I mean, you've worked so hard. You're, you're one of the world's leaders of shoulder and elbow at the uh, professor at the Mayo Clinic. So we can't think of anybody that would be better uh, to serve to be the president of ASCS. So congratulations for, for that process you. for you. All right. So, you know, we, we joke around. We've already brought up Bill Levine. Everybody knows he's a dear friend of mine. He's the, he's the official fact checker of the ortho show. And we're going to add a little new segment because Bill Levine is like the Kevin Bacon of orthopedics. You know, within one or two moves, you can identify at one point or another, you know, you know, Bill Levine. So give us one fun fact about you and Bill Levine that you could share with us that would be fun for our listeners. Well, um, one fun fact is that Bill Levine and I um, know each other very well now, but uh, there was a time where we just were, you know, kind of knew our names and nothing else. And one time in Tampa, he will remember, we each had no dinner plans and we ran into each other and he's like, you want to get dinner? And I'm like, okay. And for me, it's like, oh my God, Dr. Levine is asking me for dinner, you know? <laughs> and we spent hours and hours talking about our families, you know, his past life, my past life, uh, everything. And I, I just realized that he's such a good guy and he's been one of my main mentors inside ASCS. I love the guy. Bill and I are very close now. And uh, when COVID hit, I was thinking about what could I buy him as a present because I was so grateful. And um, I noticed that when he was online, his voice wasn't coming across perfect. So I bought him a huge microphone and I think <laughs> we're very grateful about that. So so that you know, the microphone that Bill uses when he's online is the one I gave him. So that's a, oh, fun that's a great fun fact. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that story. So we're about ready to close. I'd love for you to give some advice at this point. We have some medical students and residents from around the world who perhaps may want uh, to train here in the United States. What advice would you give a young medical student who's thinking about the process of coming to the States and training? So if someone is in medical school thinking about training in the U.S., I would strongly recommend to apply for residency. I took a different pathway. I was resident in Spain and then fellow in the U.S. And like you pointed out, they had to go to two fellowship years, and even then it was difficult to get a license. So if someone is really committed to that, I would uh, recommend that you apply for residency. Now, the problem is that candidates for residency currently are extremely competitive. When I interview our applicants, I think to myself, I would never make it. I mean, they are so good looking. They come like they're photoshopped. They, they, <laughs> they speak like three or four languages. They can, you know, they can play three instruments. Of course, they were captains of all these little teams. So it's very competitive. So you must have a strong research experience. So if you're if you're serious about it, spend one or two years doing research so that you can, you know, build your CV a little bit and then go for residency, not for fellowship. That's the main advice I would give you. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, Joaquin, as I, you know, I got a sense we were going to have a good time here today because I think this is a great life lesson for our listeners as well. Here you are, you know, you're a professor of orthopedics at, at the Mayo Clinic. You're in the presidential line for the ASCS, but yet you're you're just a kind and compassionate man. And, it, you know, you can go up and talk to people like yourself. Uh, so our listeners, if there's a professor out there that you want to get advice from or have as a mentor, go to the table, knock on the door. And more often than not, they're going to say yes and be more than happy to talk to you. And that's the sense I get from you. Thank you. You're very, very kind. Oh, it's my pleasure. So look, as we're ending, I just want to say, you know, we really greatly appreciate all of your efforts within orthopedics, within the world of shoulder. I'd love, I loved your comment that you're, you're going to provide leadership 
by serving. I love that. The fact that you've, you've taken the, the torch of your mentor, you know, Dr. Caulfield and Dr. Morey, wonderful, and you're providing that education. So we greatly appreciate your contribution here to orthopedics within the United States and the world. And it's been a great pleasure having you on the show, Joaquin. Thank you, Scott. And thank you for what you do, because the ortho show is very fun to listen. And you know uh, that a way to get out of people things that otherwise people don't talk about. So it's really, really cool, entertaining. And uh, I learn a lot every time I listen to your episode. So um, a great program. You're very kind. It is a labor of love and one that I will continue to do. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Until next time. <laughs>